As listeners to our podcast are probably aware, the ocean covers more than 70% of our planet, a total of 139 million square miles. A new initiative is looking to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030 and launch their first project in April, a push to protect the first 5% in the next five years. That 5% is no joke. That is 7 million square miles, nearly double the area of the United States minus one Texas. Converting that many square miles into effective marine protected areas is a huge endeavor. The Blue Nature Alliance is a global partnership founded and led by five core partners, Conservation International, the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Global Environment Facility, Mindaroo Foundation, and the Rob and Milani Walton Foundation. They also work with a number of partners, allies, and local stakeholders. In this episode, we speak to members of this Super Friends of the Ocean, whose powers combine to try and literally save the world. Join us now for this very special episode of Ocean Science Radio. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I'm ocean and conservation communications gunslinger, Andrew Kornblatt. And I am aquanaut, shark scientist, all-around nerd, and aspiring badass Francis Farabaugh. Today, we're going to talk about a Herculean effort to create real and lasting protections for a third of our ocean in the next nine years. There are a lot of players and a lot to get into, so let's waste no time and bring on someone who can give us the elevator pitch. Hello, my name is Angelo Villagomez, and I am the campaigns manager for the Blue Nature Alliance. So the Blue Nature Alliance is a partnership, and we have set the goal of protecting 18 million square kilometers of ocean. Thanks, Angelo. So to set the stage, what is the current state of affairs for our ocean? Where are we at as a baseline? From 2000 to 2010, we would say less than 1% of the ocean is protected. And we've seen exponential growth in how much of the ocean is protected since then. Where today, and again, this depends on what your definition of protected is and you know when, at what point do you consider protection beginning? But it's not controversial to say that just less than 10% of the ocean is protected. You know, looking forward 10 years, looking at what the, the best science suggests that we do and, and looking at the trajectory of the growth of ocean protections, there is a pathway to getting to a place where we protected 30% of the ocean, but it's, it's not gonna happen all by itself. It's not gonna happen overnight. And it's not gonna happen with just the people that are working in conservation right now. We actually need to ramp up our efforts and we need to scale up. This may be a bit of a simple, silly question, but we need to get the basics down. Angelo, why are marine protected areas important? So at its highest levels, protecting the ocean is real simple. We want to see an ocean that is full of fish and free of pollution. You know, that pollution can be plastic pollution or it can be carbon pollution. You know, part of protecting the ocean is also is addressing climate change. When the Blue Nature Alliance is talking about protection of the ocean, we're, we're, we're talking about area-based conservation. The, the scientific literature has a lot to say about how to get to a healthy ocean. And marine protected areas and increasingly other effective conservation measures 
sometimes these are called uh, conserved areas. There's a, a large body of, of scientific literature that shows that marine protected areas lead to a healthy ocean. When you take ocean spaces and you limit the, the damaging human activities that take place there, this could be fishing, uh, it could be deep sea mining, but it, it could also be tourism boats or it, it could be other types of development. When you remove some of those threats, you end up with more fish, you end up with bigger fish, you end up with higher levels of biomass and more biodiversity. Those are the sorts of things that people think about when they think of a healthy ocean. You know, a healthy ocean is a place full of fish and free of pollution. Angelo is right to emphasize that it isn't just calling these areas MPAs that is important. It is actually making sure that they ain't no paper park. Most folks have heard the phrase paper parks. This is the idea that the benefits on the water only begin to accrue once management is put in place. So, you know, the, the starting point is that a policy passes, it goes into law, it's put in the federal register, but you won't start seeing benefits on the water until a management plan is put in place or until there's staffing, until funding starts flowing, especially sustainable long-term funding that, that can fund all of the different programs of marine protected areas. The places where you're going to see the greatest benefits to nature are those places that are highly protected, that have been protected for the longest time, and that are large. These are areas that have a lot of strong enforcement. And the Blue Nature Alliance, along with their partners, have already raised $125 million to protect the ocean from the threats of climate change, pollution, and overfishing. Blue Nature Alliance brings in lots of expertise. We have folks who have worked in the management of large-scale marine protected areas. We have folks who have worked in conservation finance. And so we're going to be working with countries to improve their protected areas, to take that intention, turn it into protections on the water so that they have more fish and a healthy ocean. But to actually protect the ocean and get away from the current situation where only a small amount of the ocean actually has enforcement measures is a political process. But like with most political processes, if you get a groundswell, the movement can take you far. There's been a steady increase in ocean protections around the world, but depending on how you calculate it, it's somewhere between five and eight or 9% at this point. So we need to get a lot more protection ongoing and effective for us to maintain the ocean. And so that's kind of the origins of the Blue Nature Alliance is that we saw this need, we saw the progress that was being made and were inspired by the commitments that certain nations and communities were making to more ambitious ocean protections. But there was a huge gap. That's Lori Katz, Senior Director for Blue Nature at Conservation International. Her main role is co-leading the implementation of the Blue Nature Alliance when she and her colleagues realized that there was this gap between what protections were being made for the ocean and what was really needed. They saw the world needed to get their collective butts in gear. And we also recognized that there were huge barriers to get to that global goal including when we reflected upon it at my own organization at Conservation International, we sometimes were part of the barriers. Sometimes we didn't cooperate as much as we competed. And we realized that the world needs us to operate differently. And so the Blue Nature Alliance was born out of the, the question, if we did this differently, if we 
worked in partnership, could we accelerate the rate of ocean conservation dramatically? What took three decades, 30 years to get to 5% of the ocean protected? Could we accelerate that? And could we do it in five years uh, in partnership? And so that's where Conservation National and Pew Charitable Trust came together, invited others in on this journey and said, hey, let's try to do this differently. And so the Alliance was born out of that desire to actually shift how they do conservation work. Back to Lori on what that actually means. And so that means moving sites along a pathway towards effective implementation, where there actually is enforcement, where there is community involvement, there is active research happening. There are livelihood programs that ensure that communities benefit. and eventually moving them towards long-term durability, where there's really good governance in place, there's long-term financing, um, and we know that these protected areas are gonna be able to be sustained and managed in the long-term, including when there's kind of difficult challenges like we've experienced this last year. So success for me is not just getting sites declared and, and moving them onto the map, although that's certainly something to celebrate, but it's really trying to set them up for long-term success, that the way that they're established, the way that they're managed really ensures long-term durability. We're also looking beyond 2025 and how do we, through this work, help accelerate momentum more broadly. The answer that Lori and the Blue Nature Alliance came to was through their partners and sharing knowledge. Which brings us to another question. So how do we bring in more partners? How do we uh, share lessons and reflect on what's worked and what hasn't worked? That would be a, a huge area of success for me is if we're able to actually help others learn from the mistakes and the successes that we inevitably will have to help ensure this whole field does this work better. I think that there is a moment in time right now where scientists are starting to really understand and communicate the role of oceans in climate change and climate regulation and the impacts that climate change is causing on the oceans and that connection. The tipping point that I spoke to earlier is becoming much more evident and the need for building resilience of the ocean is top of mind in a way that it hasn't been in the past. However, the, the need for ocean conservation areas certainly supports and it is connected to climate change, but it goes beyond that. So the Blue Nature Alliance continues to bring together these many different efforts to share ideas and share support. One major push the Alliance is working on is with their partner organization, Arctic 2020. Here are Ashlyn and Philippe Cousteau to speak about this effort. One of the projects that we're working on that Blue Nature Alliance is supporting is this big push for three marine protected areas in Antarctica. And it's a huge coalition of a bunch of different groups and individuals, politicians, celebrities, musicians, and really just regular old world citizens that care about Antarctica and the importance of Antarctica and the need to protect the waters of the Southern Ocean. Antarctica 2020, as it's called, is such an extraordinary group and the Blue Nature Alliance has been a 
critical partner in helping advance that uh, the work of Antarctica 2020 and ultimately protecting and safeguarding the future of our planet because that's literally what we're talking about when we talk about protecting Antarctica. One thing to understand about conservation efforts, especially ocean protected areas, is that they usually occur in coastal areas within a specific country's exclusive economic zone. Open ocean and areas with no or unusual political jurisdictions are particularly hard to move the needle, but are the most needed. One of the first steps for the campaign is really just to get people to understand the importance of Antarctica. And even though it is a continent that's so far away from so many of us, it influences our daily lives. Everything from controlling the climate, as Antarctica is kind of the AC unit to our planet, to feeding most of the food that's spread out through our seas. And it really is just a beautiful, wonderful continent that technically no one owns, which also means sometimes it's hard to for you know to take ownership of something that no one owns, so therefore everyone owns it. Antarctica is one of those areas that is super important for each of our lives. Everything from reflecting solar radiation to thermal regulation and krill populations. But it isn't quite like a country that can just pass a law declaring their waters protected areas and have that single state sovereignty. The situation is a little more sticky which is a problem because it is also a very delicate area susceptible to environmental impact. Ashlyn is a journalist, author, and ocean advocate. Philippe, like his grandfather, is an explorer, author, filmmaker, and an environmental and ocean advocate. Together with a number of ocean scientists and advocates, they came up with a plan to create real change in Antarctica. One of the first steps for the campaign is really just to get people to understand the importance of Antarctica. And even though it is a continent that's so far away from so many of us, it influences our daily lives. Um, everything from controlling the climate, as Antarctica is kind of the AC unit to our planet, to most of the food that's spread out through our seas. And it really is just a, a beautiful, wonderful continent that technically no one owns which also means sometimes it's hard to for you know to take ownership of something that no one owns, so therefore everyone owns it. It isn't a nation, but it serves very important functions for the planet, for science, and for strategic reasons. So in 1982, an international convention established the Commission for the Conservation of Arctic Marine Living Resources, otherwise known as CAMLAR. CAMELAR, not to be confused with Camelot, currently has 26 members, including China and the US. Their main job, as said in their name, is to conserve the resources of the Antarctic. And in 2017, they actually approved the 1.5 million square kilometer Ross Sea Marine Protected Area. It banned commercial fishing for 35 years and created the world's largest MPA to date. Philippe, Ashen, and their cohorts at Arctic 2020 think they can do more. Right now, there's this proposal to establish three new marine protected areas around Antarctica that is before CAMLAR, that has been vetted scientifically, and that most of the members, in fact, all but two members have agreed to. There are two members that are holdouts, China and Russia. And this is actually part of a plan that CAMLAR agreed to in 2009, which is to establish a network of marine protected areas. You know, Antarctica, the continent is protected, 
but very few areas around Antarctica in, in the ocean are actually protected. And that's important because as we know, these ecosystems are a system. The land and the ocean are related and connected. And so unfortunately over the past 10 years, you know, progress has largely been stalled on this establishment of these marine protected areas. Antarctica has always represented something where we can all come together and the global community can set aside geopolitical differences, economic differences, and do something good for humanity. And, and that's the opportunity that we have ahead of us this year, establish these three marine parks. It would be 4 million square kilometers. And that would be the largest act of ocean conservation in the history of humankind. So it really is a chance for every single one of us on this planet to put their stake in the ground and say, we, you know, we are doing this for ourselves and for future generations. And this historic conservation represents how much of the Blue Nature Alliance's total goal of 7 million square miles or 18 million square kilometers for our metric using listeners? It's a big chunk of it. It would be 4 million square kilometers of that 18. And while 18 is, you know, a very lofty goal, there's so many countries and, and island nations around the world have committed to 30 by 30, which is so exciting. And Antarctica is a huge chunk and it would really just expedite us getting to our goal much quicker. And everybody loves a win. So this would be a huge win, not only for the ocean, but for all of us on the planet. So what is the actual process to get this amalgamation of different nations to create these marine protected areas? Apparently, it is about getting the people of the world to let Camelar know what they want, to call on Camelar. In order to ensure that we can continue to thrive on this planet, doesn't feel like a big ask. I believe what's exciting, I know we both believe what's exciting about this, is it's a simple, relatively simple solution. We can all be a part of it. Call on Camlar. It needs a unanimous vote by all Camlar members in order to establish these parks, these marine protected areas, I should say, not parks. And that's a hopeful message, that we have some simple tools at our disposal to help restore the ocean and our planet to health and thus ourselves. And we need to utilize those tools every step of the way. We're just continue to be honored to be part of Antarctica 2020 and to work with the Blue Nature Alliance and their recognition that the importance of this kind of movement building and the importance of public education, public awareness. So we're grateful to them for, for their extraordinary support. And we believe we can get this over the finish line and, and notch a big win for all of humanity. As for the question of enforcement, Philippe has a response to that issue. How do we enforce these and make sure that they're protected? The good thing about Antarctica it's very remote. And because of that, it's relatively easy to enforce. I mean, we have eyes down there. We have satellites. We do have a lot of research stations down there. And so, you know, we know that the types of ships that go down there have to be very, very large scale industrial fishing fleets that are relatively easy to monitor. And so Antarctica, it being so remote, is easier than other places to enforce. That's the good news. But yes, we need the continued political will. And in order to get that continued political will, Andrew, that's, again, where the public comes in, demanding that these types of issues stay front and center. And that's also the good news through my work at Earth Echo International, the nonprofit I founded. We're one of the leading youth environmental education groups in the world, and we focus on, on the ocean. We have a massive 30 by 30 campaign. And what, what I see and what Ashland sees whenever we walk into a classroom anywhere in the world is passion and determination on the faces of young people. 
And so, through public appearances, digital efforts, and a hashtag that we will share in our episode description, Philippe and Ashlyn continue to spread the word about Camelar. But Antarctica 2020 is just one of the many efforts and partnerships that the Blue Nature Alliance is focusing on to achieve their goals. Back to Angelo. And, and I would remiss if I didn't also say that success is people. There are not enough people right now working in ocean conservation for us to get to 30%. We need to bring more people in, and we need to bring in more different types of people. Conservation needs to be as diverse as the ocean. Our ambitions need to be as big as the ocean, but we also need to be as diverse as the ocean as well. That diversity includes bringing in younger scientists, minority voices, and indigenous perspectives, something that is very close to Angela's heart. I got involved in conservation from an early age, and it, it started with my experience as a young person living on an island. You know, one of my earliest experiences was fishing with my dad. We lived on an island, Saipan, it's in Micronesia, and my dad would fish with a throwing net. It was like a 10-foot long net. You kind of, you hold it in a certain way, and then you swing, and then you, you throw the net, and it opens up into this, you know, 20-foot large, hopefully circle, and it lands on top of the reef fish. And then you, you run after your net, and you go around and, and you, you pull out the fish. When I first started fishing with my dad, you know, I was maybe eight years old, and my job was just to hold the, the fish bag. And so I, I spent the first couple of years just following him around, and I held the fish bag. And as we would take the fish out of the net, some would get thrown back and then some would get put in the bag. And I, I sort of was taught to look at it by, you know, just by looking at the different species of fish that we were catching. And, you know, the reefs have over hundred different species, how big a fish had to be in order to keep it. And that was probably my first lesson in ocean conservation of you throw back the fish that haven't reproduced yet. And there's actually modern science. I think it's called an L50. It's the, the, the size of a fish at which 50% have, have reproduced. My parents divorced. I would end up going to school with my mom during the year, and then I would go back to the island and, and spend summers with my dad. And then the summer before I went away to college, I was fishing with my dad. We were just walking along uh, one of the northern shores of Saipan. Uh, we were just walking along the beach, and you know this is a very rugged shoreline. Lots of jagged coral, lots of rocks. So you you kind of have to like carefully pay attention to where you're walking. It's, there's waves crashing. This is very, 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 very rugged. Been like that for, for millennia. And, you know, as we're walking along the beach, we, we came across a new hotel that had been built quite recently. And they had taken, there were these coral rocks and they, they had basically bulldozed them. And then they built a concrete path so that the tourists could have an easy pathway to go from the hotel down to the ocean, you know, and that may seem reasonable to you, but like when I was 16 or 17 or how old I was, I was so angry and so offended. And I, you know, I said, dad, well, how could you possibly let this happen? I, why, why would you let them come to our island and destroy our rocks? And, you know, th this is like one of those moments and my father has since passed away, but you know, this is one of those moments that kind of stick with you. And he, uh, he kind of looked at me as like, you know what? You need to go to college. You need to learn as much as you can. And you need to come back here and make sure this never happens again. And that's kind of why I work in conservation today. Indigenous people are in many places around the world. And I, I'm an indigenous person. I'm Chamorro. I'm, I'm from the Northern Mariana Islands. I was born on the island of Guam. 
I identify as an indigenous person. So for me, this is not just um, an abstract thing. This is this is who I am. This is my people. And the Blue Nature Alliance has actually involved indigenous people at all levels of our interaction within our management team. And I'm on the management team. We actually have two indigenous people on the management team. Um, my colleague, Alani Wilhelm, she's a vice president over at Conservation International. She is native Hawaiian. You know, the reason we want to work with indigenous people where they live is that they are the longtime stewards and oftentimes the rightful owners of what we call nature. The Blue Nature Alliance wants to ensure that indigenous voices are brought to the halls of power where their voices may not have been heard in the past. The Alliance wants to ensure that indigenous groups are not only participating in the conversations, but that they are informed and that their consent is given for these conservation decisions. For more on that perspective, let's meet Susanna. Uh, thank you. I am Susanna Wangailambatitwisese. I come from Fiji, uh, live in Fiji, and I work for Conservation International Fiji program as well as for the region, the Pacific Island region. I am a forester by profession. However, I come from a little island in Lao called Moala and from a little village called Ketera within the island of Moala. The Lao Seascape Initiative is something that tries to bring in the idea of conservation and sustainable production to isolated island systems within the Fiji archipelago. So Susanna and her team started off thinking about how they could protect the high pockets of biodiversity that exist around Fiji's waters in a conservation area estimated at 335 square kilometers, where only around 1% is traditional fishing grounds for the locals. In terms of the locals, there are 13 inhabited islands within this huge massive space of ocean in Fiji's eastern archipelagic waters. And there are around just under 10,000 people living on those islands. And there's already established uh, 52 locally marine managed areas uh, within the 13 islands that are in Laos. Laos is one of the spaces in Fiji which has the highest fish reef biomass of around 2,180 kilogram per hectare. So that's pretty high. And it also has around 80% live coral cover, about 788 recorded coral fishes, 200 different species of coral, about 12 different animal species, 47 birds of which about half is migratory, and about 350 recorded plant species. Uh, so it's quite a, a unique place. A unique place that is of high importance to the locals. However, it also has a lot of challenges. According to Susanna, the area experiences a lot of unsustainable land use methods where there is excessive use of chemicals. There's also unsustainable fishing methods and rising pollution levels. Even a lot of challenges in terms of imbalance of the microbacteria in the ocean. So Susanna and her team started by reaching out to local elders and community leaders to get their ideas and thoughts. While talking to the communities and the leaders, the chiefs from the, the group, uh, we realized that there was this high biodiversity 
area, yet a lot of challenges that people were facing on a daily basis. So what could we do to balance production and conservation and at the same time support the sustainable development uh, of the, the islanders and the communities that live in the Lao province. So that's where the, the whole idea of the seascape started. And we also tried to uh, really just identify what kind of label, protected area label could we put across Lao. And uh, it was fortunate that uh, Conservation International has a wide experience in seascapes. And so, you know, as a forestry person going to all this seascape work, I could see the nexus and I could see the opportunity to also bring the learnings from Conservation International to Fiji through the work in Laos. Uh, and so we started off thinking about the Laos seascape work is a sister site to the Bird's Head seascape that's in Indonesia. And we also thought um, perhaps, you know, this would be a way in which we could bring in the fact that people live within protected areas and look at the Laos seascape as a 100% managed area within which there are high biodiversity spots that need to be protected as a total no-go zones. What Susanna is describing here, as you probably are aware, are marine protected areas. But it is more than just that. It is a comprehensive and holistic approach to conservation and preserving a way of life for the people of Fiji. Fiji, as part of the Pacific Island region, is considers, particularly the people of Lao, uh, the ocean is close to their heart, and, and it's their means of livelihoods and transportation. They go to sleep at night knowing the ocean is there. They wake up in the morning to the sounds of the ocean waves. It is an opportunity to bring back nature to the way that the local communities think about how they use nature, as well as sustainably use it for today and for tomorrow, this generation and future generation. We also see an opportunity of shared learnings where we bring in uh, the opportunity to the people to share how each island is addressing climate change, each island is addressing the pressures that they are facing on a daily basis. There are some islands, there's one island in particular that has been certified as an organic island in Fiji. And we see that learning as an opportunity to be shared with the other islands so that everyone is thinking along the lines of, you know, how can we reduce the use of pesticide in order to plant more healthy food supply and food security for current and future generation. One of the facts that gets glossed over a lot in conservation areas or approaches to ocean conservation is that many Pacific Islanders and other members of First Nations are constrained on their food sources. If their fish stocks are depleted or unavailable to them due to restrictions, there is a non-zero chance they could starve. The solution must be one where indigenous peoples can still rely on their historical food sources while conserving those same sources for the future. Blue Nature Alliance is helping us in a lot of ways. First, with the financial support from Blue Nature Alliance, we are able to generate a discourse. We are, we are able to generate a national dialogue on the importance of 100% marine managed area as well as the nexus between production protection and you know human well-being, sustainable livelihoods. And it 
also is bringing an opportunity to talk about the commitments for Fiji at the global and national level about how do we deal with putting aside 30% of our oceans under protection. And it also is helping the people of Laos to think about managing their resources in an integrated way. We are really fortunate with Alliance Assistance in that it's also helping us gather baseline information that's needed for such kind of projects as the, the seascape. It's, it's going to be a long-term commitment, so we need to know what is the status now. We're now also looking at integrating offshore fisheries and how can we best help the fishermen to stay out of the 30% that we want to set aside uh, as protected area. As you would know, uh, many of our islands in the Pacific are dependent on the ocean for external revenue, for exports. And so we therefore are very conscious of the need to balance the 30% with a continued productivity from the ocean. Uh, and so it is an opportunity to really just bring into the conversation, you know, how do we balance production and conservation and how do we co-manage the ocean with state and private as well as local communities. And for us in Fiji, the keyword is collaboration. We need to have a platform where these issues are discussed and then a collaborative way forward is agreed upon by everyone involved so that we all agree that this is the best way forward, uh, not only for the locals, but at the national and regional level in terms of ocean conservation. I'm going to lay a little knowledge bomb here. Parachute science is the practice where international scientists, typically from high-income countries, parachute into another country, typically of lower income, to conduct research and then fly out to finish the project in their home country. This is basically an extractive practice. You also see this in many conservation efforts, where people parachute in without any effective understanding of or any effective communication with the people who traditionally live there. Basically saying, let's ignore your traditions and historic relationship with nature and do it my way. With the Blue Nature Alliance, it seems like it's a different approach. So, Susanna, how is the Alliance trying to accomplish their goals without endangering indigenous culture and their historical way of life? Thank you. That's a very important question. Um, as you know, in the Pacific Island region, as in Fiji, culture is at the heart and the passion uh, of indigenous peoples. And uh, in Fiji in particular, we hold strongly to, to our traditional cultures. And with the work of the Alliance, it has given us the opportunity to go back to that and to work with the chiefs. So that's, I guess, would be the biggest difference in what this intervention is actually rolling out and past interventions that have been you know, put in place in, in the same space uh, for ocean and marine conservation. So the difference and, and the, the critical contribution that the Alliance is now helping us to do is to have the chiefs come to a forum where they could speak amongst themselves and discuss amongst themselves how to become more efficient. So we're basically facilitating that forum for them. And we believe that as we continue to facilitate this, we are looking at an end game 
where we could strengthen the chiefly and the traditional governance structure such that they could then, you know, strengthen their decision and the mechanisms in which they implement the decisions they make back on the islands with their local communities. Uh, we definitely try to ensure that the discussions are apolitical so that it's a neutral space where the chiefs could really just talk about the traditional inherent wisdoms that they have and how can they, in this day and age, bring forward those inherent traditional wisdom of how things are done, you know, looking after nature, being stewards of nature, being stewards of their own people and the future generation. That's the kind of discussion that we encourage the forum, the chief's forum to really look into. But then it's it's not us encouraging them. It's something that's inbuilt and ingrained within the way they do, uh, the way they discuss and come to conclusions on how decisions are made. Uh, so we see ourselves as only a vessel that will make it happen. And we certainly hope that by elevating the cultural aspect and the traditional aspect of leadership in conservation, this is an area where if Conservation International goes away from Fiji, or even if the alliance is not there, you know, they, the chiefs themselves, and the people that support the chiefs because of the, the very strong cultural linkages and historical ambience of, of the people of Fiji, indigenous people that have around hierarchical leadership within communities, local communities, we hope that this approach will maintain and strengthen the management of natural resources today and into the future. We hope that with the involvement, the strong involvement of the cultural element into the conservation work, uh, it will bring the passion uh, really into conservation amongst the local people. One thing that we've managed to do with the Alliance Assistance has been cultural mapping. We have managed to capture uh, historical ways in which our people from Lao have managed the environment, the resources that they have around them. And there's uh, a lot of beautiful stories of how the mana of the chiefs and the manner of the processes that are involved with decision makings on the islands actually bring about certain species at certain time of the year to support food security for the local people. So there's a lot of that cultural history and, and cultural manner that is there on the islands that needs to be protected and also facilitated uh, such that it is not lost over time given new technology and the Western way of thinking about these things as development is brought onto the islands. The efforts that are underway from the Blue Nature Alliance seem to already be monumental from bringing together different stakeholders, groups, and interests. In fact, it's probably the largest single conservation effort in terms of size and speed. They already have raised hundreds of millions of dollars for their work and made a big splash on the international stage. But they're just getting started. Here again is Angelo. We, we can't do this alone. It's, it's a big ocean. Getting to a place where 30% of the ocean is protected is going to take 
partnerships. It's going to take ways of working together that maybe we haven't even figured out yet. It's going to take bringing in people that may or may not have thought about ocean careers. But you know, we we need more people working in ocean. If we're going to triple the amount of ocean that's protected in the next three years, we need to bring in more people to to do the work and continue the work once we achieve those goals. And that extends not just to scientists, not just to government workers, but but also businesses and scientists and schools and, and, and all sorts of things. So my recommendation for people who want to, to get involved in this issue is to find out how you can get involved in your own backyard. I'm from an island next to the Marianas Trench. I am most effective in my community. It's where I live. It's where I grew up. I know the people there. And that's where I'm most effective. For any of your listeners, the place where they will be most effective is in their own backyard. And even if you, you live a thousand miles away from the ocean, there's, there's still ways to get engaged in, in these activities where you live. I'm a big fan of supporting small organizations, small NGOs. Nearly every community has a high school with an environment club. And I, I bet they have a teacher that would just love for somebody to pay for a pizza party so that you know her life is that much easier and in inspiring the next generation of conservationists. So you know, there's a million different ways to find something to support in your local community. There's high schools, there's colleges, there's local chapters of national clubs. Lots of places have like, like in Florida, there was this organization called the Thousand Friends of Wakaiva River. And these friends groups exist all over the country and all over the world. Um, and And they need your support. And, you know, if the people living in your community aren't going to support them, who else is going to? So that would be my advice for people who want to get engaged in the issue. It's really important to protect 30% of the ocean because science tells us that in doing so will result in a healthier ocean full of fish. Whenever you protect an an ocean space, either through a marine protected area or through a fisheries closure, the science tells us that we get more fish, we get bigger fish, we get higher levels of biodiversity, and there's more fish biomass. So there's more fish and more fish benefit the people that live next to those places. The Blue Nature Alliance is another one of those efforts that was launched during the UN Ocean Decade that, to us, shows a lot of promise and a lot of hope. We definitely will be following their progress closely. You can also hear a quick chat with Angelo on our sister podcast, the Marine Science Conservation Happy Hour, through the Speak Up for Blue network. Big thank you to our guests today and the wonderful work you do, and thanks to our listeners. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, this has been another episode of Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. In this episode, we speak to members of this super friends of the ocean, whose powers combine to try and literally save the world. I mix metaphors there with super friends, which is like, you know, Batman, uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, Isn't that the Justice League? It's also super friends. Like, they they had both. Okay. Uh, Saturday morning cartoon was super friends. I want to be honest with you. I'm less familiar with the uh, DC because their cinematic universe is not as good. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It sucks. It's super... Like, they're trying to be metal, and they're just not doing yeah. a good job at it. Yeah, um, just stick... The Wonder Woman was okay. You should have stuck with that it, vibe. It was. Like, Wonder Woman... I haven't seen the second Wonder Woman yet. I have not either. It's yeah. People tell me it's terrible. 
people t give me mixed reviews, and that's what I have with the first one because you know up to a certain point it's pretty damn awesome, and then it turns into a massive CGI fight. Yeah, the and... end. The end was with. Um... Weird CG bodied Remus Lupin was um, <laughs> was was questionable, but that's like five percent of the movie. The other five percent of the movie was was good. Yeah, I mean there are. I mean, like with any superhero movie, that with this is not a superhero podcast. Anyway, no, it's not. Uh, Hi, I'm Ira Glass. <laughs> on this week, sorry, on this episode of Hanging Out with the Dogs, Francis and Andrew will be talking about why dogs are awesome. Why do when we do our NPR voices, do we lean into our microphones and then because, lower our volume? Because that's what they do. They just lean in real close, like they're whispering into an ear, really close. <laughs> And very soft, because you don't want to go too loud. And this is a nice, soothing voice. So, now, welcome to you. <laughs> to the, welcome to This American Life.
How's that sound? How's that feel? Feels great. And it's an important thing that, you know, we often are like, why stop eating the fish then? And you're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they Angela's, can't. People will go hungry. Angelo has been wicked uh, vocal on Seaspiracy. And, like, that's part of what's being talked about here is, you know, understanding that it's a multi-purpose MPA specifically in this area. While the Antarctic, uh, sorry, uh, Antarctica would be a no-take MPA, this is a uh, a horse of a different color, so to speak. Yeah, no, and I think that's really important. All right. I'm going to lay a little knowledge bomb here. Parachute science is the practice where international scientists, typically from high-income countries, parachute into another country, typically of lower income, to conduct research and then fly out to finish the project in their home country. This is basically an extractive practice. And I, def- and I definitely didn't do that for my PhD. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, I did. <laughs> all my all my words in French Polynesia. Um, However you want to take it. <laughs> on this week... <laughs> sorry. On this episode of Hanging Out with the Dogs, Francis and Andrew will be talking about why dogs are awesome. Anyway. Because that's... Because that's what they do. They just lean in real close like they're whispering into an ear. Really close and very soft because you don't want to go too loud and this is a nice soothing voice so now back to (laughs) 